I am Lucius Kafrisch, professor at the Graduate Institute of International uh, Studies in Geneva. And I'm going to talk to you about the contemporary law of international watercourses, some aspects and some problems. International watercourses are an important fact of everyday life and in the life of nations. They have served and served as bulwarks and frontiers between national communities. Some of them are navigable and are used as channels of transportation and communication. Other utilizations are of importance as well. Domestic uses, irrigation, fishing, the production of energy, to name the most important. International watercourses also generate problems. How are they to be managed and protected? What to do in the event of flooding? How shall their users be apportioned between riparian states? How should disputes among users be settled? Some of these questions shall be examined in these lectures. Before that, a look shall be had at the sources of international watercourse law, however. And a first source to mention is custom. Part of the contemporary international law on this matter finds its roots in the practice governing the relations between member units of federal states sharing the same watercourse, particularly in the case law of American federal courts. These courts have developed a rule according to which watercourses and their uses are common commodities to be shared among the political units on whose territory they are located. Being a common amenity, the watercourses and it, their waters must be used by each unit in an equitable way and one respectful, respectful of the equitable uses made of them by other such units. This fundamental rule was originally applied in federal contexts, but subsequently came to be transposed and extended to the level of international interstate relations as a particular form of a general principle of law recognized by civilized nations, a notion that is mentioned in Article 38 of the Statute of the International Court of Justice. This uh, principle may by now be regarded as a rule of customary law. Another fundamental rule, which operates in other fields of international law as well, is the so-called no-harm rule. That is, the prohibition to inflict harm on other users of an international watercourses including environmental harm. The roots of this rule are to be found in Roman law. That rule seems to have become another general principle of law applicable in many areas of international law and among them in the law of international watercourses. Today this rule too may be regarded as having customary value. Treaties are another source of international watercourse law. 
there are innumerable treaties, both multilateral and bilateral, in the field of international watercourse law. The Barcelona Convention on Navigable Waterways of 1921, the Convention on the Rhine of 1868, the Convention on the Danube of 1948, and the Indus Treat, uh, Law Treaty uh, of 1960, to name but a few. Since 1997, we also have an agreement of a global character, the 1997 UN Convention on the Law of the Non-Navigational Uses of International Watercourses, which will form the main topic of these lectures. Regardless of that agreement, international watercourse states remain free to conclude their individual treaties. Dealing with this or that aspect of international watercourse law, or with several and or all of them. Now let us have a short look on the birth of the 1997 Convention. The Institute of International Law, an association of public and private international law specialists founded in 1873, has adopted several resolutions on this matter. In 1961, it issued a resolution in which it asserted the right of every international water course state to use the water of an international water course as long as it respects the limits set by international law in particular the rights of other riparian states. In the event of disagreement, the matter was, according to the Institute, to be dealt with equitably by having recourse to arbitral or judicial settlement. In 1966, the International Law Association, another group of international lawyers, perhaps with a more practical bent, adopted the so-called Helsinki Rules, the essential part of which were principles governing the uses and resources offered by international watercourses. According to Article 4 of the Helsinki Rules, each basin state was entitled to, and I quote, a reasonable and equitable share, unquote, of the basin waters. What did the International Law Association mean by the adjectives reasonable and equitable? An answer may be found in Article 5 of the Helsinki Rules, which lists 11 factors to make it possible to determine the extent of such an equitable share. Among the factors listed, we find elements such as the contribution of water made by each international watercourse state, the economic and social needs of the state concerned, natural factors such as the geography and the hydrography and the hydrology of the basin, the use made by other international watercourse states of the water resources, the possibility of utilizing alternative means the necessity to protect 
the fluvial environment, etc. Not all the factors listed were to be relevant in each and every case, and the list found in Article 5 of the rules was not exhaustive. Nonetheless, the whole range of factors indicated by Article 5, which have the force of legal principles, like the equitable principles mentioned in Articles 74 and 83 of the 1982 United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea for the delimitation of the exclusive economic zone and the continental shelf, should make it possible for the states concerned or for the relevant international dispute settlement agencies to determine the reasonable and equitable use to be apportioned to each international watercourse state. The International Law Commission, an expert body of 34 members and a subsidiary organ of the General Assembly of the United Nations, spent nearly 20 years on the topic of the non-navigational uses of international watercourses, including items such as the avoidance of pollution, the joint management of such watercourses, and the peaceful settlement of water disputes. In 1994, the International Law Commission sent a draft, uh, well, a set of draft articles to the United Nations General Assembly's Sixth the Legal Committee, which in 1996 established an open-ended working group of the whole, that is, a body accessible to all states to negotiate a convention on the subject. On the 21st of May 1997, after two phases, of fairly unpleasant negotiations, the General Assembly, by Resolution 51 bar 229, adopted a convention text elaborated by the group. This text came into force on the 17th of August 2014, after its ratification by 35 states. The framers of the 1990-70 Convention have relied heavily on the work of the International Law Association, without which the International Law Commission would have faced a very difficult task. The 1990-70 Convention is a framework treaty dealing with a large number of issues and cannot therefore be dealt with comprehensively here. This is why we shall focus on three aspects. First aspects, Articles 5 to 7 of the Convention on Reasonable and Equitable Utilization and on the Prohibition to Cause Harm. Second, Articles 11 to 19 on the procedure to be followed if an international watercourse state plans a new or extended use. And third, Article 33 of the Convention on the Peaceful Settlement of Disputes. Let me start with the rule on reasonable and equitable utilization, that is, with Articles 5 and 6 of the Convention. 
Following the course set by the Institute of International Law and by the International Law Association, Articles 5 and 6 of the 1997 Convention confirm the rule of reasonable and equitable utilization. Article 5 sets out the basics of the rule, while Article 6 lists the criteria to be used when determining the reasonable and equitable character of a given utilization by a state. That is, first, the existing natural features, geographical, hydrographical, hydrological, climatic, ecological, and other factors. Second, the economic and social needs of the watercourse states that are involved. Third, the populations of the states concerned, which are dependent on the international watercourse. Fourth, the effects of a use by one international watercourse state on other such states. Five, the existing and the possible uses of the waters. Six, the, and I quote here, conservation, protection, development, and economic economy of use of the waters and the costs of measures taken to that effect, end of quotation. And seven, the availability of alternative means of comparable value to particular existing or planned uses. Articles 5 and 6 call for two comments. The first is that they closely follow the pattern set by the Helsinki rules by indicating the elements to be considered when determining the size and quality of equitable utilization, a technique which incidentally had also been used in 1993 by a subcommittee of the Afro-Asian Legal Consultative Committee when dealing with international watercourses. And, this is my second remark, it is difficult to fathom what is meant by the adjective reasonable, adopted, added to the term of equitable utilization, though it has been suggested that this qualification excludes, excludes non-beneficial uses such as the pure intention or the pure intention that is at the base of such uh, of uh, such uh, uses is that of harming other states to the exclusion of any benefit. So much for Articles 5 and 6. Article 7 of the Convention provides that international watercourse states, and I quote, shall in utilizing an international watercourse in their territories take all appropriate measures to prevent the causing of significant harm to other watercourse states." Unquote. And that if such harm nevertheless occurs, the state having caused it, and I shall cite again, shall take all appropriate measures, having due regard for the provisions of Article 5 and 6, mark that phrase, in consultation with the affected state to eliminate or mitigate such harm and, where appropriate, to discuss the question of compensation." End of quotation. This is a formulation 
of the no harm rule, which was introduced at the behest of some lower riparian states. Indeed, the states belonging to that category are often more advanced economically and technically than upper riparians and therefore are anxious to preserve the status quo, that is, existing prior utilizations. The simi simultaneous presence of the principle of reasonable and equitable utilization and of the no harm rule in the 1997 convention raises the following problem. Does Article 7 protect existing prior uses in all situations, even if those uses go beyond what is reasonable and equitable? Or does the no harm rule apply only if the claim made by the state planning a new or extended use exceeds that state's reasonable and equitable share? In this connection, three arguments can be made. The first argument is that the initial draft of Article 7, as suggested by Mr. Schwebel, second special rapporteur of the Commission, provided that the causing of significant harm by an international watercourse state was not unlawful as long as it remained within the bounds of the right to reasonable and equitable utilization of that state. Later on, some members of the International Law Commission contended, however, that the no-harm rule was the fundamental element in the matter. This amounted to saying that the reasonable and equitable utilization rule would not apply wherever the international watercourse was fully used. A new or extended use by a state which had not hitherto uh, claimed and obtained its reasonable and equitable share would thus be deprived of that share because by using it that state would inevitably cause significant harm to the existing uses of other international watercourse states, even though those uses may go well beyond what is reasonable and equitable. Such an interpretation would, furthermore, border on the absurd, since it would contravene a basic principle of international watercourse law as it was developed in the context of federal states and later on by international practice and as it was included in Articles 5 and 6 of the 1990-70 Convention. This means that it would become necessary to turn to Article 32 of the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties of 1969, which suggests recourse to supplementary means of interpretation wherever the ordinary ones listed in Article 31 of that Convention would lead, and I quote the Convention, to a result which is manifestly absurd or unreasonable. A second argument can be drawn from the wording of Article 7 itself, which provides that states causing significant harm to other international watercourse states shall apply the article 
in the absence of any agreement to the contrary, and I quote, with due regard for the provisions of Articles 5 and 6. This could and should be taken to mean that whenever a state planning a new or extended use has not yet exhausted its part of reasonable and equitable use. Finally, and this is the third argument, the judgment of the International Court of Justice on the Gapchikovo Nojmaros project should be mentioned. That case mainly related to a treaty concluded in 1977 excuse me, between Czechoslovakia and Hungary and providing for works and installations to be built by each state on the Danube River. For environmental reasons, Hungary later on stopped the work to be undertaken, and as a reaction, Slovakia, a successor state to Czechoslovakia, then produced, proceeded to modify the original construction plans unilaterally. In its judgment of 1997, the court repeatedly mentioned, and I quote, the fundamental right of Hungary to an equitable and reasonable part of the resources of an international watercourse, end of quotation, but made no reference whatever to the no harm rule, despite the fact that the 1997 convention, which in many respects may consider a codification of existing international law, had already been adopted at the time of the court's judgment. All these arguments point to the same solution. Article 7, that is, the no harm rule, is applicable only if the claims of the international watercourse states accusing, accused of causing significant harm are in excess of the principle of reasonable and equitable utilization. We have now finished considering Articles 5 to 7 relative to reasonable and equitable utilization and to the causing of significant harm. The next item to be considered is Articles 11 to 19 on prior notice. The 1990-70 Convention does not confine itself to setting out substantive rules on issues such as reasonable and equitable utilization or the prohibition of causing significant harm. It also provides for ways and means to secure the application of those rules. Articles 11 to 19 of the Convention provide in a detailed way for the procedures to be followed by international watercourse states when they plan to begin a new activity or to extend an existing one. Article 12 is the key provision in this respect. It prescribes that before implementing or permitting the implementation of planned measures which may have a significant adverse effect on other international watercourse states, 
the planning state must proceed to, I quote again, a timely notification of its intention, accompanied by the available technical data and information, including the results of any environmental impact assessment, so as to enable the states so notified to evaluate the possible effect of the planned measure. A first comment to be made here is that Article 12 is the means for triggering an examination of whether the measures to be taken fall within the planning state's right of reasonable and equitable utilization, Articles 5 and 6 of the Convention, or whether they are apt to cause what is called significant harm to other international watercourse states. The initial assessment of whether such a risk exists will be made by the planning state itself. But as we shall see when discussing Article 18, there are ways and means to allow other international watercourse states to correct the planning state's assessment in that matter. A second comment is that the planning state's obligation is as a rule limited to providing information readily available. If the notified states want more, they may have to defray the costs for obtaining that additional information. A third comment is that while environmental impact assessments do not seem to be required, their results have to be communicated, but only if the planning state's national law makes such assessment mandatory. One does wonder, however, whether this remains true after the judgments of the International Court of Justice in the Pulp Mills case of 2010, case between Argentina and Uruguay, and the case on activities and constructions in the border area of 2015 between Costa Rica and Nicaragua, or whether as a result of those decisions environmental impact assessments may now be regarded as compulsory under general international law. According to Articles 13 and 14, the notified state or states shall have a six-month period to react to the notice. And if they experience a special difficulty, that deadline may be extended for another period not exceeding six months. If the state or states notified fail to react, the planning state may go ahead with implementing the planned measures. During the period of study of the planned measures by the notified state or states, the planning state must supply the supplementary information and data that may be requested. Under Article 15, the state or states notified by the planning state must react to the notice given within the periods specified in Article 13 and provide a documented explanation of their doubts regarding the measure planned. According to Article 16, 
a finding that the measures planned conform to Article 527 of the Convention, or the absence of any reaction to the planned measures within the periods prescribed, puts an end to the proceedings. If a communication is made according to Article 15, however, and if doubts are raised as to the legitimacy of the planned measures, the states concerned shall consult and, if necessary, negotiate to find an equitable solution. If no such solution materializes without, within yet another six-month period, the planning state remains prevented from is implementing its plans if the notified state or states so request. This is what results from Article 17, which marks the passage from a preliminary stage of mutual information to a phase of peaceful settlement of what has by now become controversial. During the additional six months period provided for by Article 17, the implementation of the plans should remain suspended so as not to compromise the issue of consultations and negotiations. Article 18 is a sort of a counterweight to the latitude given to the planning state by Article 12. It allows one or more other international watercourse states to request a planning state to apply Article 12 if it has not done so already. This amounts to a right to, act the plan to ask the planning states, which has initially seen no problems with its plans, to take a second look. This, however, is possible only if the international watercourse state or states in question have serious reasons to believe that the measures planned could have significant adverse effects and if they provide, and I quote, a documented explanation setting forth their grounds. Finally, Article 19, entitled Urgent Implementation of Planned Measures, allows the planning state to implement the planned measures immediately if there is a need to protect public health, public safety, or other equally important interests. Such implementation must, however, be preceded by a formal declaration of urgency addressed to the other international watercourse state concerned, together with supporting information. This does not moreover relieve the planning state of its obligations under Articles 5 to 7 of the Convention, and furthermore, that state must promptly engage consultations and negotiations with the other international watercourse states concerned. These procedural issues may seem somewhat abstract and trifling. Nothing could be further from the truth. In reality, they are highly relevant. They bring to life a set of relatively abstract substantive rules and therefore bridge the gap between substantive rights and their implementation. They also mark the transition from a mere obligation to give information to the genesis of a dispute 
and to the initial phases of its settlement by the parties themselves. This was the first lecture. The second lecture will be devoted to two items, the peaceful settlement of international watercourse disputes and an examination of two precedents. These topics will be followed by brief conclusions.